Welcome to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I am managing editor uh, Drew Griffin, and we have a special episode this week focusing on kind of a foreign policy news and review covering the uh, week's news. So much happened in the international community and on the international front this week. It kind of merits uh, a special sit down and and discussion and maybe in-depth dive on on some of the news beneath the headlines. And with me uh, today is Mark Melton. He's our deputy editor for Providence. He's our founding deputy editor uh, for Providence, right? Um, just a little bit about Mark, uh, though I'm sure he's he's been introduced to many of you, and I'm sure his his fan base is out here um, uh, listening. Yeah, both of them. Yeah, hi, Mom. Um, that uh, he earned his uh, master's degree in international relations from the University of St. Andrews, uh, focused on uh, political economy and military affairs and uh, civil conflict, especially in Europe and Eurasia and the Middle East. His bachelor's degree is in foreign language and international trade uh, from Mississippi College. Uh, again, he's been the founding um, deputy editor here at Providence. And if you love our content, if you love our uh, print content and our online content, all of it passes through his skillful editorial hands, and we would be nowhere without him. So I'm really grateful to have him around and looking forward to this conversation. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Um, so uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, three kind of major news stories that happened this week. And just let's just kind of have a little bit of a discussion and try and get beneath the uh, fire and fury of, of kind of news coverage. The, the first is obviously the North Korean summit, the second summit uh, that Donald Trump had with Kim Jong-un. Um, there in um, uh, Hanoi and Vietnam, this uh, summit was much, you know, lauded by uh, Trump and his kind of supporters, much bemoaned by his critics. Uh, it produced really no major results. It ended abruptly uh, before it was scheduled to end. Uh, the um, main kind of uh, announcement signing ceremony was canceled at the end, and, and Donald Trump basically did a press conference and said. Look, you know, they asked for some things that we couldn't give. Sometimes you have to walk away. And uh, he walked away and flew back to the maelstrom of Michael Cohen and all the things going on here in D.C. And so you've got, you know, his defenders are saying, you know, this is diplomacy at its at its greatest. Trump is a uh, would be peacemaker. And, you know, he's just trying his best. And uh, against an implacable uh, enemy, his critics are saying this was a total waste of time. This was completely predictable. It's a it's a foreign policy disaster. So which is it, or is it somewhere in the middle? Is this like the you know the greatest uh, diplomatic effort since Yalta, or is this you know a major uh, fiasco and disaster that reflects badly on the United States, or is it somewhere in between? What do you think? Usually, if I'm given a choice between extremes, I'm going to choose somewhere in the middle. Okay, but good. Yeah. <clears throat> I think uh, Trump was right to uh, walk away from the negotiations. The question was, should he have been there in the first place? And that's uh, that's a completely different question in of itself. But Trump's style has been to have these direct negotiations with Kim Jong-un. And so it's not really surprising that he wanted another summit, the pageantry and everything else. But we've also seen, going back to his book, The Art of the Deal, he walks away from negotiations at times, and that's part of his tactics. And we've seen where uh, that you know, has helped him in divorce negotiations and business negotiations and in situations where you're behind closed doors, you're one-on-one, -on -one, and when you walk out, people kind of freak out and they try to give you more to make you happy. But what we noticed during the shutdown just you know a month ago, or I guess a couple of months ago because this is now March, the 
you know, he walks out of a negotiation with the Democrats and then they, they're not flustered. They just – they kind of expect it and then move on. But they're also negotiating with the crowd watching them. Everyone in America and the news and whatnot is watching them. And so we have this situation also with North Korea where, you know, the world is watching. And so I'm not particular. – we're going to have to wait and see. Is this going to be like the negotiations where he walks away during his divorce negotiations or is this like him walking away during the government shutdown where it actually hurt him a bit in that negotiation process? Yeah, do you think that there is a – I mean, what can you – like? I look at the situation and I, I look at kind of Trump's forays into uh, diplomacy and into kind of peacemaking. And I try my best to kind of give a little bit – give him the benefit of the doubt and to try and discern through his statements and through the statements of the diplomatic corps and, the, and, and Pompeo and John Bolton and all of these individuals that kind of exist in the diplomatic cloud that surrounds you know the Trump administration – and dealing with North Korea, I look at it and I'm like, I try my best to discern some sort of like, what's the plan? Like, what's the end goal? Is it the denuclearization of North Korea? Is it Kim Jong-un like deciding to, you know, come to a census and step down and call for elections? Is it the uh, end of the war and some sort of like peace agreement that actually ends the Korean war? And we see the kind of demilitarization of the Korean peninsula. And it seems as though, you know, Trump uh, will go in and say, look, I'm just happy if, and he said this this week uh, in a news conference, he said, look, I'm just happy as long as there's no testing. Is there no testing? No. I'm just happy there's no missile launches. I'm happy. He seems to be somewhat satisfied with that. Uh, Kim Jong-un, of course, is saying, no, like, I want complete, you know, relief from U.S. sanctions, kind of be welcomed back into the international economy and the international community. So, uh, and then you've got Bolton, uh, who's obviously hawkish on this, Pompeo, who is quite a bit nuanced, and they both come in and say, and I think you could tell when you looked and, and listened to President Trump's news conference following the um, summit, that he, he said, he was asked pointedly the question, you know, did you make the decision to leave? Did you make the decision to walk away? And he's like, well, the decision was made, you know, and, and so I walked away. And so you you get this this hawkish kind of sentiment of really hard line like the the only solution is maybe the utter capitulation of, of North Korea Trump that's somewhere mushy seems like in the middle despite some of his early sl- saber rattling he comes in and just says look as long as they're not testing as long as they're not you know um, um, you know advancing and and building new facilities I'm okay so I mean. Can you discern and, and help, you know, if, if providence exists to equip the American mind to engage the real world, how can we equip our readers kind of to discern what the uh, U.S. policy is for North Korea? I mean, can you make any sense of it? Because I, I have a very difficult time finding a consistent line that I can kind of wrap my mind around and say, yes, you know, I'm, I think we're on the right track. I think the overall strategy has been toward a denuclearization defined as North Korea doesn't have a nuclear weapons program. It doesn't have nuclear weapons. I think that is the end goal for the United States. Some people also add human rights issues to that mix. I don't see the administration really addressing human rights except to uh, you know, attack or criticize North Korea. I don't – I think – it would be great to have human rights on the table, but I don't think the administration is going to do that um, at this current stage. But to your point of Trump says he's happy that they're not developing the program, he may be happy about that. But I also think he's a president who 
is a communicator and he is his forte from being on reality TV to uh, Twitter and everything else is driving the narrative. And so I think when he's talking about being happy about X, Y, and Z happening in North Korea, it's because X, Y, and Z is happening in North Korea and uh, he wants to claim a victory on that. Now, I think probably what does he want? We don't, it seems to change on foreign policy issues on a regular basis. Like, what does he want in Syria? What does he want in North Korea? That seems to change pretty quickly, depending on who has his ear. But I would suspect that the administration at large is focused on denuclearization. Now, what is Trump focused on day in, day out? I don't necessarily know, because I think the president's mind is also distracted by a few other dozen things at the same time. Yeah, right. And you bring up an interesting point. When you talk about his uh, propensity to to kind of think of narratives in the kind of reality, episodic uh, kind of format that he's used to, um, that brings some interesting implications, right, for his foreign policy, because foreign policy is not a you know, it doesn't operate under a, a, a necessarily a news cycle or like the same with the same kind of rhythm that a an episode of a reality TV show. I mean, this is these are narratives that are um, stretched out over decades, right? Sixty nine years uh, of uh, war that have existed with uh, North with North Korea. Uh, 13 presidents, of which Trump now is the 13th, to uh, that have had to to deal with this. I mean, this is a massive, you know, meta narrative over the course of of generations, and so it, it seems though that he can get completely absorbed in the moment and in the moment of meeting with an individual, which has led to some some really harsh criticism. And I. You know, I don't want to jump on like a train of, you know, criticizing for the sake of criticizing. But what baffles me and what I would love, like, you know, kind of Trump defenders or, or people who are, are, are really in favor of the way that Donald Trump seems to comport himself on the international stage. What I would love to see is when he makes statements about um, uh, North Korea and makes statements about Kim Jong-un, who is a, you know, a despotic tyrant. I mean, this is a guy who is in total control of a um, uh, dictatorship, a regime in uh, North Korea that is uh, obviously a, a violator of human rights. Uh, he subjugates his people. He oppresses his people, the majority of which are a large number of which are starving or food deprived. Uh, they have a tiny economy which only exists really to uh, support its military apparatus and to support Kim's regime. Um, and yet Trump will go out and say, hey, this is this is my friend. We're friends. You know, he's a great leader. You know, he's doing his best. Uh, and then this this statement that happened that a lot of people have jumped on and, you know, I want you to help me kind of make sense, maybe help our, our readers make sense when you look at uh, his statement considering the Warmbler case, right? So Otto Warbler is this um, uh, this uh, college student who was in China, exchange student who visited North Korea. He was accused of removing, you know, a propaganda poster. I think in 2015, he was imprisoned uh, for 15 years. Um, Trump somehow in the Trump administration gained his release, which is um, you know to be commended. But he was released back to his parents uh, in 2017. And uh, was returned in a vegetative state, showing clear signs of torture. And it was condemned by the international community. 
Uh, Trump's response has been condemned by Otto's family uh, just this week. Uh, and, and his Trump's response to it was, hey, you know, Kim said that he didn't know anything about it. I take him at his word. So who knows? And it's it, it's a clear pattern that seems to be developing, whether it's uh, Mohammed bin Salman and uh, Jamal Khashoggi or it's, you know, Vladimir Putin or any of these any kind of these leaders that make statements and there are clear moral um, you know, uh, moments that are teed up for a president and the, the moral leader of uh, a country in the Western world to basically hit out of the ballpark, and he he whiffs and misses it. So is this, um, is this I think, a, a weakness, you know, kind of maybe to your point of his kind of episodic mind frame? Is this just part of his grand strategy? Is he a master chess player at diplomacy? Like, I mean, what do you, what do you think? What's your opinion? Or do you agree with me? Do you think there's even a, a pattern there of some sort of kind of moral acquiescence? I think there is a pattern. We've seen it from the uh, Helsinki news conference right. where basically everyone in his administration is, has one message and he gets up there and says something different. And uh, so uh, I think there's a bit of like – I don't know how much he trusts his own administration officials and advisors. Um, there's also an issue of – does he hear one thing and then a few minutes later hear something else and then kind of goes along with that line? It's kind of hard not being in the room and hearing the conversations, what exactly he's thinking. Uh, we even saw this recently with the trade negotiations with uh, China where the uh, his advisor is saying, no, a memorandum of understanding is – a great thing and he's saying no it's not a great thing and they're doing this on live tv in front of each other and so uh, did they have a conversation beforehand where they were like this is what an mou is and trump just didn't believe that or care or is he doing that like we don't necessarily know what's going on i don't think in his mind day to day and uh, but to the uh, case of auto it makes complete sense that Kim Jong-un knew what was going on. And it may just be that Trump is trying this negotiating tactic of flattery, trying to not create animosity between him and Kim Jong-un to create a deal because he'll then turn around like you know, not that long ago. He was calling him Little Rocket Man and that – you know, clearly was an antagonistic approach. Right. And so maybe he's trying something else, trying a different tactic. And does, will it work? I I don't think it will. Right. I think there he may just be throwing spaghetti against the wall, seeing which tactic works. Right. I'm not sure if he eats spaghetti. I think it's McDonald's, right? But well, he's throwing thing. French fries against yeah, the wall fries, to see which ones are Big so Mac greasy. Seeing, yeah, which, yeah, which sticks against the wall. Well, I – what what's puzzling about that to me, and and what is uh, kind of troubling, is that you know I think one of the whole reasons why Providence exists, right, is to um, help people understand the, the realistic environment in which policies and events are, are taking place, right? We are a journal of Christian realism. We we focus on getting beneath people's just wants and desires and, and maybe even aspirations to recognize the, the reality that confronts us. And there are hard and fast realities out there that undergird the news stories and you know we ignore those kind of at our peril and it may sound good you know to ignore them and it may sound good to call enemies friends and it may sound uh, it may ease the momentary meeting to avoid kind of harsh topics but those harsh topics still exist and those evils still exist and it seems like whether it's Jamal Khashoggi whether it's um, 
Otto Wambier. It's it's Wambier too. I think I said Wambler earlier. So Wambier. Um, it is uh, whether it's um, Jamal Khashoggi, whether it's Otto Wambier. Um, it is everyone in the the planet. It seems like is able, even people who don't seem to have like an overly uh, developed moral framework or, or quiet on other ethical issues, can stand up and say this this was evil and this was done by evil men. And the funny thing about totalitarian regimes like Saudi Arabia, like North Korea, is that almost nothing happens underneath the leader that the leader doesn't know about. That's the whole point of the leader, like being in complete and total utter totalitarian quote. Quote unquote, control of his country is that you you can't have a foreign citizen in that country either being assassinated or chopped up in the case of Jamal Khashoggi in Saudi Arabia or Otto Wambir being beaten and tortured and rendered completely in a vegetative state in North Korea without the leader probably knowing about it and accessing to it. Like that's, uh, and so you can avoid it and you can, you know, pass the buck and you can say, hey, let's just wait and punt until next time. But the reality still exists. And what I can't understand is like domestically, um, like Trump would be in a good, you know, um, uh, space and I think would succeed politically if he condemned Russia, if he condemned Saudi Arabia, if he condemned North Korea, I mean, even just taking taking it from like a cynical political standpoint, like in politics, it's good to have enemies. And in reality, the United States has enemies and the West has enemies and freedom has enemies. So call these enemies out, you know, right? And 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 kind of marshal the, the moral uh, focus on those enemies. So it's... Um, it's really troubling. Um, we'll obviously see and continue to cover it kind of here at uh, Providence. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about the other major story, right? The other major conflict between two nuclear powers in uh, India and Pakistan. And let's, uh, let's chat about that a little bit. Welcome back to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I'm Drew Griffin. I'm here with uh, Mark Melton, our deputy uh, editor, and we've been discussing kind of a foreign policy week in review. And we spent the first kind of section of our show talking about uh, the Korean summit and the uh, kind of debacle or success, depending on how you look at it, of, of that endeavor uh, by the Trump administration. Now, we're going to move on to another major, huge news story that despite its uh, immense importance and, and major kind of uh, potential ramifications was covered almost not, not at all by uh, the major news sites. And so you may or may not even know kind of what happened in regards to India and Pakistan, but uh, it's, it's a major story. So Mark, to kind of lay out what is going on up to this point uh, concerning India and Pakistan. Well, last month, around uh, February 14th, there was a suicide bombing in Kashmir and the Indian-controlled part of it. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the geography in the area, Kashmir is a disputed territory between India and Pakistan. And uh, so uh, the a local um, you know, resident of Indian-controlled Kashmir carried out a suicide bombing. And the person who carried out this attack claimed affiliation with a group in Pakistan. So 
Earlier this week, India launched an airstrike against what they say were the militants. Now, we don't actually know what they bombed. They claim that they killed about 300 militants. Pakistan claims that they hit a hillside filled with trees. In fact, I believe earlier today, Pakistan said that they were going to um, list a formal complaint against India for doing eco-terrorism because all they did was blow up a bunch of trees. <laughs> and that's actually being an issue, becoming an issue in the forthcoming election in India because some of the opposition candidates aren't convinced that India actually bombed any militants that they were act- they missed and they were hitting the wrong target. So in response, Pakistan launched airstrikes against India and India responded and um, they claimed that they shot down some fighters. But what we do know is that Pakistan did shoot down two Indian fighters. They were MiG-21s and we believe it was probably a JF-12. 17 fighter jet that shot down these aircraft. And one of them landed, or one of the pilots landed in Indian-controlled territory, and the other one landed in Pakistan-controlled territory. And that pilot was released earlier today. And this has caused a huge, um, you know, huge controversy um, amongst the two countries. In fact, I was sitting next to a guy yesterday who was watching a video from Pakistan kind of explaining their views of that. And so it's a big topic. And the biggest part of it is that it's two nuclear powers who are shooting at each other. And this could have had the potential to escalate. I don't think that it was very likely to escalate to a nuclear war, but the problem is if it does, it is a it would be a huge controversy, even if it's a low probability event. Right. And all of this is happening in the context of uh, a major election in India, which is uh, taking place. And you've got the uh, current prime minister of the BJP party, uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, uh, who is running against uh, the Indian National Congress candidate uh, Rahul Gandhi. And, you know, um, Modi is a, a nationalist, a Hindu nationalist who is who has kind of been criticized uh, by, by many people for kind of embracing a very harsh uh, tone and rhetoric towards uh, minorities in India, uh, towards Muslims, to a lot of saber rattling and a lot of just kind of uh, national pride that he's been um, uh, instigating in order to kind of develop his own uh, political persona and and gain popularity in the country and. So what you've got is a, uh, uh, you know, uh, people who are, uh, you know, all politics is local. Uh, these guys are playing for their domestic audiences. And there is a, um, uh, you know, Modi has every uh, interest and every uh, really, uh, I think, um, motivation to be hard line about this, right? And to not uh, look weak and to not look um, like he's uh, acquiescing in any way or, or uh not taking a hard enough line against Pakistan. And so it's, um, so there are a number of layers of this. I mean, but this is a conflict that's been going on for, you know, 30 plus years, somewhere between 30 and 70,000 people have, have, it's estimated have died in this kind of struggle that India and, and, um, Pakistan have had uh, over Kashmir. And so, uh, what do you think is, uh, uh, you know, people have, called upon uh, the world community to kind of step in, obviously because of the nuclear threat. Um, do you see uh, any movement? Have we heard much from the United States or from the State Department uh, trying to tap this violence down? Uh, what are we kind of hearing uh, stateside uh, from the U.S. government, if anything? 
There, I believe there were reports about the U.S. calling for de-escalation, that we did have some people who were trying to negotiate. Now, what role were they playing? How significant were they? I don't know. What other actors, whether from China or Europe or elsewhere, were also involved? I don't know. But the there were reports that the United States was trying to get involved with some people. I don't know which people they were, though. Right. So it's odd. Uh one of the things that I want to kind of point out and that is, uh, you know, trouble, troublesome here uh, in this particular story is the fact that the United States does not have currently an ambassador to Pakistan. Uh, we do not have an undersecretary for that region of Asia. Uh, we have an acting secretary of defense who has uh, publicly made statements that he is kind of unwilling to uh, step into this uh, particular fray. And so the, the diplomatic apparatus, you know, over two years into the Trump administration that hopefully would be fleshed out and filled out and able to maybe engage with its principles in the region doesn't seem to be in place, which I find extremely troubling. Uh, the one hopeful thing that I see – I don't know if you've seen this as well, that uh, it, it appears as though Imran Khan, the uh, prime minister of Pakistan, is making every effort to de-escalate this. You know, they have released um, – they released the pilot uh, rather than killing the pilot. They have even said uh, that, you know, when India came in and said, you know, we actually bombed these towns, Pakistan has come in and said, no, actually the towns weren't bombed. And I think it's been a, major, a main effort to kind of squelch the um, the Pakistani street, right, to kind of keep uh, the, the public in Pakistan uh, from kind of losing it. And because you've got uh, Jaish al-Muhammad, which is the, uh, the terrorist group that carried out these attacks in Kashmir, it's the same group that uh, killed Daniel Pearl um, uh, earlier in the, in the last decade. And so this is a, uh, you know, uh, terrorist actions is being taken by a terrorist group that's, that's really seeking to destabilize the, the whole region, uh, like al-Qaeda or like the Taliban or like um, Hezbollah or any of these uh, kind of terrorist organizations that exist outside the official framework uh, but are have a real destabilizing kind of um, impact. So if you had to – I know you've been following the story this week. I mean do you see um, this escalating, continue to escalate or do you think maybe we've, we've seen the peak and it's going, going to kind of back down? I think we've seen the peak and it's going to calm down. The uh, There is the ongoing propaganda going back and forth between the two different countries. One of the interesting points I would make about this conflict as well is not just the propaganda, but it looks as if the Indian military was caught off guard with the fact that there was a MiG-21, which is some of their worst aircraft that – or you know, their highest prone to failure aircraft fighting against – well, some reports said they were Pakistani F-16s. Others said that they were this newer uh, JF-17. The uh, and so why why were these aircraft even fighting against more modern aircraft? And so it looks as if that the Indian military may not have been prepared, which is a big, you know black eye for India right now, even if it is a small skirmish that kind of dies away. And that can play into the ongoing election where it looked like Modi may have been improving his chances to win re-election. If this becomes a controversy then and he comes across as weak and unprepared with the military, then that can backfire against him. Also, if we're going to uh, – some people want to use India as a ally – um, against China. And if India can't handle Pakistan, then what chances do we have of you know a strong military alliance with them or any type of military hedging against China, which that's all up in the air and they could you know go 
you know, either way. Right. I think it's going to be interesting to watch the Indian election, how this uh, particular episode uh, plays out uh, for Modi. And if, uh, you know, it's despite all his, his nationalism, despite his popularity in what is called the cow belt, which is kind of the northern part of India uh, and, the, and the kind of Ganges kind of region that's, that's uh, highly kind of uh, Hindu, um, you know, India is a massive country. It's a huge, you know, country over uh, well over a billion people. And in the southern part of India, there are a lot of people who don't seem to indicate, you know, that Modi is not all that popular and they're not overly concerned with Hindu nationalism. And so I don't think his position is nearly as strong as it may look uh, from the outside. And I think that this very well may could may be a debacle that that hurts him politically, um, and that may not be a bad thing uh, for peace. So we're definitely going to have to watch this. Um, all right, I want to switch gears uh, briefly to Israel. Uh, we've talked about North Korea and the the massive crisis between nuclear powers there. We've talked about India and Pakistan and the potential massive crisis between nuclear powers there. We're going to move further deeper into uh, the news to uh, uh, an important topic. Uh, concerning Israel, concerning Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, the Attorney General of um, uh, Mandelblit in um, uh, Israel has announced his intention to indict uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu on various charges, um, uh, fraud and uh, uh, corruption. This is uh, huge news as this is happening in the midst of uh, Israeli election where Netanyahu is seeking uh, re-election. And so I, it's going to be interesting to follow. I want to kind of tee up a conversation that we're going to be having soon uh, with uh, Providence editor Robert Nicholson, who's the executive director of the Philos Project, who uh, spent um, years uh, working in Israel. And we're going to talk about uh, many things in our interview with him, the rise of anti-Semitism, but we're also going to discuss the Israeli election and talk about uh, – um, uh, what the implications of this, but are there any, like, if, if, uh, what are your thoughts? If you, if you have any on this, just maybe really quickly, uh, domestically here in the States, uh, are there any implications if Netanyahu is somehow not reelected? If he, uh, if his, uh, Likud party is not, uh, returned to power, his coalition doesn't hold. Well, Netanyahu has created a close alliance with the Republicans and Donald Trump, and this alliance seems to go back you know, at least to the fighting against the Iran deal. And so if Netanyahu is not there and the Republicans are still in the White House and still in the Senate, what does that do with the next party? Like what were their relationships going to be with the governing powers in the United States? And then we also have our elections coming up in 2020. What happens then, especially – I'm especially interested because this prime minister has been so – seems one-sided in its alliance. Now, I'm sure they would probably say that they're developing alliances with the Democrats as well, but this would be a development worth watching. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's going to be uh, worth our attention and it will continue to uh, cover it here at uh, Providence. And that's going to kind of wrap it up for this uh, foreign policy news and review. Mark Melton, thank you. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been a good conversation. Uh, You've been listening to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can follow us at ProvidenceMag.com. You can download us on SoundCloud.com and on iTunes.
Thank you for listening to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Provenance, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and you can go to our website, ProvenanceMag.com. Download us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you for listening.